So tonight's a very special night for me because this is the first time I talk about the book in Palestine, which, as, as many writers and, and analysts who work on this issue know, is, is quite a privilege for, for Palestinians in the diaspora to, to be able to come back. But also because I'm joined by someone who saw this book from its PhD days, if, if not before, from its master's days. So it really does feel like the completion of a journey. So Mandy and Mahmoud, thank you for, for giving us the, the platform, and thank you all for, for coming tonight. So usually I talk to academics about this book, and this is not an academic crowd. So I'm going to try to give you information that a sophisticated crowd like you that spends time in Palestine that knows about Hamas will find interesting and will find engaging. So I'm going to try to not um, essentially bore you to death by talking about Hamas's history. And the way that I thought I was going to do that is by talking to you about some of the observations that I've been seeing ever since I moved, I moved here. So I've been living in Palestine for about a year now, uh, having moved here with, with the crisis group. And I've been doing field work on a whole host of issues. Uh, anything you might think about that has to do with Israel-Palestine, I've asked questions about. I've asked Israeli politicians, Palestinian politicians, members of civil society. And, and as you might expect, I never get straight answers or agreement on anything that I ask people about, except for Hamas. When I talk to Israelis or when I talk to Palestinians, the Palestinian leadership in the West Bank specifically, there tends to be broad agreement among both those uh, interlocutors that the Gaza Strip has effectively been severed. The Gaza Strip has effectively been isolated. That Hamas is an entity that has been contained and placed and, and, and controlled within the Gaza Strip. And really, if there's a way to deal with Hamas, if, there, if there's a way for us to get Hamas out of the equation, then everything will be fine. You know, we'll be right back on track. The two-state solution will happen. You know, the question of Palestine is seen very much through the prism of the PLO and the West Bank and the Israelis. And Hamas is somehow seen as an anomalous organization. It's, not, it, it's unclear how Hamas fits into this picture. And over the course of the past 30 years, the, the fates of Hamas and the Gaza Strip have become intertwined. Uh, we see Hamas as Gaza and Gaza as Hamas, and effectively they're just, uh, both those realities are sort of brushed to the corner and, and somehow placed as an exception to the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. And this is often also in the way we talk about things. You know, we talk about Gaza, uh, Gaza and escalations between Gaza and Israel. We talk about escalations between Hamas and Israel as if the Palestinian element is removed from that equation. So these, this way of viewing Hamas, this way of viewing the Gaza Strip, is one of the things that I hope my book is challenging in, in the work that it's done. And so what I want to try to do in the half hour I have is to bring to this general observation that I'm seeing from my field work three, three big interventions. And again, I don't want to go into the details of uh, some of these issues. I'm sure we can talk about uh, various aspects of this in the Q&A. But I want to try to put forward to, to a group like this three, three big themes that I think can help us reframe our understanding of Hamas and how it fits into this Israel-Palestine issue that we're, we're all here and interested in. So the first, one, the first theme, one of, one of the main uh, questions that I ask in the book, uh, and this is something that you can also reflect on, is, is Hamas under blockade because of is the Gaza Strip under blockade because of Hamas, or is Hamas under blockade because of the Gaza Strip? And I think that's a really interesting way to think about what the politics of the situation there are. If, as a hypothetical, Hamas were to miraculously disappear tomorrow, I'm sure many people would, would value that and like that, would the blockade on the Gaza Strip end? The conjecture I have, the hypothesis I put forward in the book, is that it wouldn't. One of the ways that, one of the themes that I try to read Hamas is to see it essentially 
as a fig leaf that legitimates policies of separation and policies of isolation of the Gaza Strip that in fact predate Hamas. The Gaza Strip, the characteristics that make the Gaza Strip what it is, is the problem for any Israeli government, and it's been the problem for successive Israeli governments since 1948. Years before we, before we uh, think of Hamas as the actor that it is today, uh, the Gaza Strip produced or was the, the uh, originator of many of the initial uh, forms of Palestinian resistance to Israel, uh, including the leadership of the PLO and obviously the leadership of the Muslim Brotherhood. So from 1948 onwards, we've had a situation where the Gaza Strip has presented successive Israeli governments with an exceptional challenge. That's not only because it's one of the most populated uh, areas within uh, uh, Israel-Palestine today, but also because two-thirds of that population are refugees who are looking to go back to homes that are now within Israel. Since 1948, the scholar Jean-Pierre Filieux has, has told us and documented that there's been 12 major wars carried out by Israel on the Gaza Strip. Apart from wars, there have been policies of separation, policies of pacification, policies of economic disengagement, policies of bombardment, extrajudicial assassinations, military incursions. There's been a whole host of tactics, including openness and economic uh, engagement, that have been tried in order to pacify the Gaza Strip. The Gaza Strip hasn't been pacified. And if we think about the trajectory of this, we think of uh, Israeli, in Israeli discourse, the Gaza Strip uh, being seen as a fidaeen's nest in the 1980s when the PLO was active in the Gaza Strip. That, uh, that uh, term almost seamlessly transitions into being seen today under Hamas as a terrorist haven or an, on, an enemy enclave. So one of the main theses that I, that, I put forward, that I put forward in the book is that Hamas, as an Islamist movement, as a movement that is committed to armed struggle, has in many ways provided the perfect justification for policies that separate and isolate the Gaza Strip from the rest of the Palestinian territories, not necessarily consciously, but certainly inadvertently, this has become the outcome. And we see today that outcome working in every, in every aspect of dealing with the Gaza Strip. We see a blockade in which two million Palestinians are placed under collective punishment as being a necessary policy in order to deal with the security issue that Hamas presents. We, we see uh, wars and military assaults like 2007 and 2012 and 2014 as self-defense. What allows these, uh, this, uh, these policies to be seen in this angle is, I argue in the book, Hamas and what Hamas is. So that's the first theme, understanding Hamas as the fig leaf that justifies or legitimates or appears to legitimate these policies. So what is Hamas? The second theme that I try to work on in the book is something that actually in my field work today, I find myself struggling against with more, more with Palestinian interlocutors and Palestinian politicians than Israeli politicians. The refrain I often get from the Palestinian political establishment is that you know, Hamas isn't really Palestinian. They're part of the Muslim Brotherhood. They're not looking, they're not invested in creating a Palestinian state. They really just want to create an Islamic caliphate. They're part of this Muslim Brotherhood project, and that's where their allegiance lies. Now, this has produced a whole host of issues, uh, including in the long-standing issue of the absence of reconciliation. How can, you recon how can the PLO reconcile with a movement that they don't necessarily see as part of the Palestinian national movement? So the second uh, theme that I grapple with in the book is to reclaim Hamas and place it straight in the center of the Palestinian national movement. What do I mean by that? The, the, the point that I keep zoning in on the book is 1988. And I see that as a turning point in the Palestinian national movement. I see 1988 as a point when the PLO, which uh, as a movement that uh, was committed to armed struggle for full liberation, 
aligned itself with anti-colonial movements around the world. It aligned itself with revolutionary movements around the world and carried out what the scholar Paul Chamberlain calls a global offensive. So it, it carried out, obviously, acts of violence all over the world, and it, it brought the Palestinian question to, to the international stage. By 1988, the Palestinian leadership under the PLO was moving in a different direction. It was moving in the direction of accepting uh, that compromises had to be made, recognizing the state of Israel, and redefining their struggle as one of independence, as one of wanting to build a Palestinian state essentially on 22% of the land of Mandate Palestine. Hamas, as a movement that was created less than a year before uh, Chairman Arafat's uh, iconic speech in, in 1988, Hamas was a movement that rose to carry the mantle forward. It was a movement that rose in a way uh, with the intention of maintaining what, what it viewed as the purity of the national struggle, which was armed force for full liberation. But whereas the PLO articulated that in anti-colonial rhetoric and in third-worldist rhetoric, Hamas emerged as a, at a time of resurgent Islamism across the region. It was spawned off by the Muslim Brotherhood, and it, it described that same ideology in an Islamist frame. So one of the arguments I make is that the ideology is, in, in terms of substance and how it relates to the Palestinian issue, is actually constant. The framework is what has differed, and this is an Islamist framework here. In that sense, we, become to, we begin to understand Hamas not as a part of the Muslim Brotherhood, although, of course, philosophically, it aligns itself with that movement. But the academic discourse is increasingly showing us, actually, that Islamist movements are, have very much accepted the nation-state model. And Hamas, even though its philosophy might be Islamist, its practice is the creation of a nation-state. And in that sense, it's very much a Palestinian national movement that has essentially continued what it viewed the PLO as having conceded. And what's more than that is it, it, its leadership, many of its leadership believe that its Islamist framing, its, its faith, its faith in the divine, actually would allow it to withstand pressure that the PLO wasn't able to withstand. Because it's playing a longer game. It's the arc of history, in their view, is much longer than the arc of history that a secular organization, and, and I say that in quotations because I don't necessarily think the PLO is secular, but a secular organization would. And so we have an organization that's now deriving its constitution from theological texts, but essentially re-articulating what it views as the purity of the, of the national struggle. The third theme that I play with in the book, and I think this, this I'm, I'm going to sort of talk about this theme before, talk, before moving on to more contemporary issues, is to talk about, to think about Hamas and the PLO and the trajectories that they've both been on as actually very similar trajectories. So in both instances, we see movements that are focused on this idea of liberation, on this idea of uh, dismantling Zionism, recreating historic Palestine. Essentially, both those movements in their current form have been subsumed into governing authorities that work under overarching Israeli hegemony. We know the story very well in the PLO context. We know the Oslo Accords. We know the creation of the Palestinian Authority as an entity that has, that has essentially uh, now subsumed the PLO and openly entered into security coordination tactics with Israel, so in many ways it's seen as an extension of the occupation. But is that really the case with Hamas? When we think about what's happening in the Gaza Strip, we see a movement, Hamas as a movement, if we're thinking about it as this broader liberation movement, that's now essentially shackled to governance in the Gaza Strip. It's shackled to a government, a Hamas government in the Gaza Strip. And even though it's not engaged in security coordination the way the PA is engaged in security coordination, it does indirect negotiations with Israel in order to stabilize the Gaza Strip in order to negotiate access of fuel and funds, in order to make sure that it's able to control the population under its, its rule. So in many ways, 
what we have is uh, an, al an alignment of interests between the Israeli government, certainly under Netanyahu and Hamas, whereby they're both interested in essentially maintaining the current reality, but just making sure that the suffering in the Gaza Strip is just a tad less than what uh, might otherwise cause a collapse. So whether, again, inadvertently or not, Hamas has become uh, complicit, essentially, through its governance um, in a system that is meant to stabilize the reality of Palestinians under Israeli occupation, whereby it's taken it upon itself to meet the needs of a population under its administration at the expense of the broader liberation project that it, it began, at least in its, its early days, to be invested in. So what we have, really, is two national projects that have both failed, and two governing authorities that are now more interested in stabilizing the status quo rather than essentially uh, leading the Palestinian people towards liberation. And what is more is that those two entities are competing against each other in a zero-sum game, where the success of one is necessarily the, success of the, the loss of the other. And we can talk about what that means in terms of reconciliation and all the, all the, the other aspects of that in, in the Q&A. So those are sort of some of the big themes that I struggle with in the book. And I try to answer some of those questions chronologically through uh, trying to describe how Hamas evolved between 1987 and 2017, so over a 30-year history, and to show how the movement essentially uh, transitioned from the military sphere into this governance sphere that I'm talking about. So having put those three themes to you, and you know, uh, uh, many of you might disagree with, with those, and we can certainly talk about that, I want to bring us to two concluding points. The first is to, talk, to think about this in terms of conflict resolution. Uh, what does that mean in terms of this attempt to bring um, justice and equality to Palestinians now living under occupation? Whether we're looking at the PLO or we're looking at Hamas, the reality is that Israel has been very effective, successive Israeli governments have been very effective at managing the conflict, whereby rather than addressing the political drivers that animate these movements, they're able to marginalize these movements in, uh, re in rhetoric. So the PLO is obviously seen as a terrorist organization that Hamas is seen as, as another branch of Al-Qaeda and another branch of ISIS. Rather than dealing with the core issues that animate the Palestinian national struggle that moved from the PLO to Hamas, we have a situation where those are actually marginalized and lost in the process of dealing with the day-to-day -day tactics of engaging with these movements. And because of the, the fact that we're dealing in an asymmetrical situation where obviously Israel is a powerful state militarily, diplomatically, and economically, it's able to manage uh, that reality in a way that's very effective, that sustains the illusion of a future uh, resolution to the conflict, when in reality, all the drivers and the vehicles of the Palestinian national struggle have effectively been neutralized. But the second point, which I want to end on, I think is the one that might be more interesting, is to think about the next phase of the Palestinian struggle. So if we see Hamas as the phase of the Palestinian national movement that came after the PLO, is there now that Hamas has effectively, in many ways, been neutralized and contained in the Gaza Strip? Is there a new phase that's emerging? And I think that it's really interesting for us to think about what's happening in the Gaza Strip today in the context of the Great March of Return. You know, this is one of the, at least in its early days, one of the most uh, tenacious, um, widespread, uh, politically diverse mass mobilization in Palestinian history. Uh, it was certainly on par with the intifadas and with, with, the, with the revolts before that in terms of its longevity. We've seen the effect be almost zero. It's, it's, it hasn't had any impact locally within the Gaza Strip and certainly not internationally in terms of the way the international community has responded to this mobilization. This is a mobilization that emerged of Palestinians talking about their rights rooted in 1948, not their rights rooted in 1967. They're seeking return. So in many ways, they're articulating the key tenets of the Palestinian national movement. So 
back to my earlier point about what are the real political drivers. They're articulating the core political drivers of what Palestinian nationalism is. What's happened to the movement? Forgetting the fact that Israel has, and Israeli army officers has used live fire and, and the ICC has found that to be amounting to war crimes. Forgetting that the international community hasn't responded to this. The movement has essentially been used by Hamas uh, in a way that allows the movement to enter into indirect negotiations with Israel. It's essentially been leveraged uh, by Hamas in a way to ease the pressure off of the Gaza Strip. Again, whether inadvertently or not, and we can talk about that and debate that, the outcome has been that Hamas has very much co-opted a movement that at its core, or at least an, a, a, in its inception, was a, a movement of popular mobilization and a movement of civil society. Certainly it had happened already with Hamas's approval, but the way that Hamas sort of has co-opted that movement since um, is something that we need to be thinking about when we're thinking about what the next phase of Palestinian nationalism is. My reading of the situation is that the next phase of Palestinian nationalism isn't factional. It isn't going to be Fatah and the PLO or Hamas. It's going to be popular, and it's going to be focused on rights, both individual and collective. In that sense, the Great March of Return shows us, in some ways, it's a foreshadowing. It shows us what kind of popular, what kind of challenges any form of popular mobilization will face. And the challenges are ugly. They're the challenges that have to do, obviously, with Israeli use of lethal force and with international apathy. But there are also challenges that have to do with the political leadership, the Palestinian leadership being invested in the status quo, being invested in maintaining the current reality in a way that doesn't change. And in that sense, it's, it becomes interesting to think about Hamas within the same uh, framing as one might think of the Palestinian Authority in, uh, in the West Bank and thinking about the challenges that they both now represent to, to the future of the Palestinian movement. I think I'm going to end there. Uh, I, uh, I, I've tried to sort of give you broad themes that we can play with and, and bring it to the current moment. Uh, but I'll, I'll turn to Jose and, and hope to see some questions from you all in a bit. Great. Thank you, Tarek. Let's make it work. This work. Thank you, Tarek. Can you hear me? Yeah. Thank you. Good evening, everybody. I am Jose Verikat. I'm the director of the Carter Center's offices in Israel-Palestine. And I will be moderating a discussion today uh, on Tarek Bakoni's book, Hamas Contained, The Rise and Pacification of Palestinian Resistance. Thank you to Mandy uh, of the Kenyan Institute and Mahmoud of the Educational Bookshop for organizing this and inviting me. I will start off with my own response to the book, then I will ask a few questions to the author before opening it up to you, the audience, hopefully 10, 15 minutes max of my own comments, and then just a few questions. I would like to start by highlighting the importance of the subject we're discussing and the difficulty in doing so. There is a dissonance between how well-known Hamas is around the world, as much a household name as Al-Qaeda or ISIS, and how little serious writing has been done on it. I hope there's not too many people in the audience that feel offended by that. Um, this is at least partly because writing about Hamas is somewhat transgressive. To write a book about Hamas is almost in itself an act of rebellion. The logic of the so-called war on terror has become such that the effect, that is terrorism, must be disassociated from the cause, in this case, the Israeli occupation. Politicians in Israel have exploited this they have tried to dismiss all struggle against the occupation as terrorism, and they have tried to link international terrorism to Hamas. Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu is perhaps the greatest exponent of this. The epitome was his speech at the UN General Assembly in September 2014, in which he equated in one sentence Hamas, ISIS, and Iran. There is also a tendency to turn Hamas into a synonym for Palestinians as a whole, in order to dehumanize them. Again, in 2014, after the war in Gaza, the head of Ares, the crossing between Gaza and Israel, Shlomo Tzavan, retired army colonel, who still, by the way, serves as the head of that crossing, was quoted by the New York Times saying, this is Gaza, 
This is Hamas. This is animal. In conversations among policymakers about the Israeli-Palestinian conflict and efforts to resolve it, Hamas is the elephant in the room. Nobody knows what to do with it. Few people have, can have direct contact with it. Most Western diplomats have what's called a no-contact policy. In the, in the United States, a series of cases have been raised against international NGOs currently, this past year or two, accusing them of violating the Material Support Terrorism Act for little more than meeting with Hamas representatives, the Carter Center among them. I wrote a review about Tarek's book in which I described it as quietly revolutionary. This was not just a reference to the content of the book, but actually about his methodology. The very fact that Tarek has attempted to write a history of Hamas is on its own worth underlining. All of the major works about Hamas that I can think of have written about it thematically, no one chapter for each major theme. This might sound ex excessively academic or, or pedantic, but writing a history of the movement in chronological order is a way to address attempts to essentialize it, to challenge efforts to paint Hamas as a movement that has an immobile essence. Tarek treats Hamas as a rational actor that reacts to developments at different stages, weighing pragmatically the opportunities to advance its interest and that changes over time. Beyond its methodology, the real added value is, of course, the content. Often writing about Hamas, whether academic or journalistic, meets pretty slow standards of, of rigor. Such a writing is likely to include phrases, phrases like Hamas thinks, Hamas believes, without attributing a quote to a particular Hamas member or alluding to any sort of internal debate. This book, however, is serious scholarship. This is a political history of the movement. Tarek analyzes in detail the major milestones over time in its struggle with Israel and in competition with other Palestinian factions. He examines the decisions the movement makes and the debates around them. This is also a book about Palestinian politics, internal Palestinian politics, and about a party in the opposition, Hamas, as opposed to Fatah, the ruling authority. Tarek shows how, time and time again, the concessions the movement has made, the countless offers to reach compromise. In my opinion, the book establishes like never before the degree to which Hamas has come to terms with the existence of Israel, at least implicitly, and how its struggle is fundamentally against the occupation in the West Bank and Gaza. He describes how Hamas leaders have expressed time and again readiness to reach an agreement with Israel. Though the book covers the movement from its establishment in 1987, his focus is on the period from the Second Intifada until today. Tarek's criticism of Hamas's use of violence during the Second Intifada is particularly severe. Most writing about Hamas is based on interviews. It helps that Hamas leaders are rather accessible to researchers and journalists once you get a permit in, to enter Gaza, of course. The use of interviews is mostly a good thing, but Hamas leaders are also media savvy and are careful to convey the impression that suits them. It used to be that Hamas was an underground movement and they didn't have much written down. Now they have, that, that has changed dramatically. But only Tarek has taken the trouble to do that sort of archival research. He has surveyed an enormous amount of written sources. You have looked in great detail at Hamas's own publications, but also perused most of the books written about Hamas in Arabic, making all the material available to a much wider audience. Lastly, the book is beauti simply beautifully written. I'd like to read a paragraph and end with this from the preface in which Tarek captures wonderfully, I think, the atmosphere in Gaza. He says, Gaza's reality can be jarring to any outsider wading in. Tragedy has become routinized, almost mundane, particularly for a younger generation, many of whom know no other life outside this imprisoned land. Initially, one could be forgiven for being lulled into a sense of relative normalcy. During the short time I was allowed to spend there, Gaza bustled with life. Streets were filled with vendors, cafes teamed with patrons breaking the fast, college campuses heaved with students and faculty attending summer courses. Traffic crept slowly, night market and thoroughfares came to life on piers that jutted out over the water from Gaza's sandy beaches. Hotel lobbies were filled with journalists and filmmakers. Yet this illusion 
of life was shattered far too easily and often. Collapsed, building, collapsed buildings sprung into view and humming drones interrupted conversations. Plowed, proud fl flags declaring Hamas's military training sites fluttered as one drove through the various cities. Life unfolded against a physical and mental backdrop of destruction. The daily hive of activity that one walked into was little more than a testament to what Gaza could be in an alternative reality. The quotidian goings-on of Palestinians there spoke of the human spirit of survival and appeared to me at last to be a tragic manifestation of endless motion in stillness. Students graduated into unemployment, vendors sold to cover their costs, families shopped to survive. Gaza is held in time, contained from the outside world, nurtured just enough to subsist, never to grow. You will agree with me that it's a very poignant passage, whether you have ever been to Gaza or not, and I'm just thinking how probably many of you haven't actually, um, because of the, the strict closure. So before opening up to, to the audience, I'd like to get the conversation started with a, with a few questions of my own. So I'd like to also from, to, to, to refer back to the preface of the book um, and to, to uh, um, something you write about, Western audiences able to distinguish between anti-colonial violence and native barbarism in other contexts, but not in the case of Palestine. You say, the Palestinian struggle for self-determination seems frozen in time. In many ways, an interminable anti-colonial struggle unfolding in a post-colonial world. It is a world that's confronted the carnage of decolonization, but the battle is still raging in Palestine with ever-present agency, urgency. The simplistic binaries that frame conversations of Palestinian armed struggles evoke the condescension, the condescension expressed by colonial overlords towards the resistance of indigenous people. Why do you think that is? <laughs> wow. Um, so why, why do I think that we're in a, in a, in a post-colonial... Yeah, we were yeah. stuck in the anti-colonial... Um, it's stuck in the anti-colonial violence, but in a post-colonial world. Yes. Um. <clears throat> I think, you know, the reality is obviously, in, in some ways, it's, it's the, the, the simple arc of history, the, the fact that the, the world has moved on in, in, in most cases, not certainly not in, in all cases, but in most cases has moved on beyond uh, the, the anti-colonial movements and the liberation struggles that shaped uh, you know, the 40s, 50s, and 60s. And even by the time the PLO was making its concessions in, 19, in the 1970s all the way to 1978, the world was entering its post-colonial movements. But as we all know, the reality of the question of Palestine has been one that is exceptional. In, in many ways, and it, it continues to be exceptional. Even you know, today when we think about progressive politics around the world, there's progressive politics for everything except for Palestine. And, and that kind of exceptionalization, I think, uh, also persisted, also existed um, for Palestinians while the rest of the world was being um, decolonized. I think the international investment in creating uh, a, a, a home for the Jewish people, Zionism and the, effect, uh, the, the effectiveness of Zionism all meant that the struggles that the Palestinian liberation movement had to get over or had to, had to overcome, I think were much bigger uh, in, in some ways, were very different. Maybe I shouldn't compare them as bigger. They were just very different and quite exceptional to this particular area. Um, why do I think, I mean, I, so I think there's, there's that sense, that sense that it, it was the natural trajectory of history and the fact that the, the question of Palestine is exceptional in, in, in many ways. Um, but I do think that this has also persisted in, in some ways now because of 
the politics that have happened outside of Palestine. So if we think about Hamas, and specifically Hamas not, not being able to see Hamas as an anti-colonial movement, I think that's partly because of the war on terror. That's partly because of the issues that have happened on the global stage, where, Islam, where Hamas now is seen predominantly through its Islamist lens. It's not seen at all through its lens of uh, anti-colonial uh, liberation from occupation uh, uh, framing. It's very much seen as an Islamist movement, the conflation of Hamas with, as you said, groups like ISIS and Al-Qaeda has just made it very difficult, very, very easy to overlook or, or uh, intentionally ignore uh, the fact that Hamas is uh, fighting against an oppressive foe that is in, 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 uh, in many ways um, immovable. Um, and one of the things that I try to do in the book, and, and especially in the preface from which you, you kindly read from, is to try to take the reader to the center of gravity that's not in New York City with the Twin Towers, to take the reader to a center of gravity that's actually in Palestine, where there is at least an attempt to hear how Hamas's leaders and how Palestinians who support Hamas talk about its armed struggle, why they, they support it, what they view as the purpose behind the violence. It's very easy to... Um, sit in American uh, TV uh, stations and talk about Palestinians having a culture of hate, where we don't think about necessarily this as a liberation movement, we think of it as pure terrorism. But it's much harder to try to understand why someone living in Gaza or Ramallah might support Hamas and support Hamas's use of violence. Um, and I think bringing in the colonialism uh, that Palestinians have been fighting against for the past century is the only way to understand that. Thank you. I, I want to linger on that on, on a point you made about relations between Fatah and Hamas, and you saw Hamas as something of a of a consequence to to Fatah. Um, I, um, I, and I want to make a reference to the scholar um, Helga Baumgarten and her essay titled "The um, The Three Faces of Palestinian Nationalism," um, in which she divides Palestinian. Uh, nationalism into the movement of Arab nationalists, embodying its um, pan-Arab phase, then into Fatah, um, its um, specifically Palestinian form, and then in, into Hamas, its religious Islamic um, variant. One speaks to the PA leadership in Ramallah, in, in, in meetings, about Hamas, and the, uh, and the temperature of the room rises, right? Um, they will launch into a tirade about political Islam and the Muslim Brotherhood, um, their incapacity to leave power um, once they've gained it, uh, more broadly about how Fatah and Hamas represent two fundamentally different and incompatible visions of the world um, and of the Palestinian nationalist uh, movement itself. Do you think they are incompatible? Do you think um, that Hamas is, is, a, is a passing face? That's, that's a really good question, and I think I, I started addressing some of those answers in, in my presentation. I, I think that Helga's work about the phases of Palestinian nationalism is, I, I agree that the Palestinian nationalism or national struggle has gone through phases, and, and for people here who are not familiar with her work, she's articulated those phases as going through uh, three 30-year phases, so three-decade phases. So starting from Arab nationalism uh, in the 40s, 50s, and 60s, going into the PLO, and then from the PLO going into Hamas. And it is very much how I see that, that framing as well. And, and I, I don't necessarily see Hamas as a, as a consequence to Fatah as much as I see Hamas as a party that was already emerging for various factors uh, within the Gaza Strip because of the Muslim Brotherhood um, and because of the infrastructure that the Muslim Brotherhood had, had um, developed over the course of the years, but that Hamas, uh, that Fatah's compromise and Fatah's concession uh, ultimately created a, a, a kind of boost for uh, Hamas to emerge as a movement that would continue carrying the mantle forward of, of Palestinian nationalism. Is it a passing phase? I mean, I, as I said, I think Hamas... Uh, certainly in its uh, quote-unquote pure ideology, in it, that same ideology that the pure ideology that animated the PLO of armed struggle for full liberation has failed. Um, and I think it will continue to fail. Uh, and uh, I, I think that in that sense, it has been effectively 
uh, institutionalized into governance. So in that sense, I think that, that thinking of uh, Hamas as leading the Palestinian national movement into, into liberation, I think, um, is unlikely. Uh, and I do think that there will be a, a, a phase coming out. But are the two incompatible? I think that's a, a, a sort of more interesting question. And I, I also feel the temperature rise in the room when I'm sitting with Palestinian politicians in the West Bank when, when you bring up Hamas. Um, and I think the kind of demonization that, that uh, Fatah, uh, members of Fatah and members of the PLO have of Hamas uh, for me, is a sign that there's a fear of actual engagement with the movement. There's actually a fear of uh, what might happen if they see that actually uh, there's more in common than not. Uh, and it is uh, about factional interests in the end, in my opinion, rather than about the broader national struggle. I think that uh, Fatah really believes that the concession, uh, or, or I shouldn't say Fatah, uh, there is a, a, a group within Fatah or, or divisions within Fatah, but the PA leadership at least believes that the concessions that were made through Oslo were the right concessions. And I think that is fundamentally incompatible with how Hamas views it and with how other Palestinians view it and other uh, political parties view it. So in that sense, there's an incompatibility. But in, in the sense of understanding the core drivers of Palestinian nationalism, understanding the PLO and Fatah in, in its revolutionary days, understanding Hamas in its early days, in that sense, they both have very compatible ideologies, even if one is in an Islamist framing and the other is, is not. Um, so I do think that there is, if, if we, go, we break out of the sort of the politics of the, the governments, of the uh, authorities, and think about the politics of the broader liberation movements, uh, if we are thinking on the level of the PLO, not the level of the PA, I think there's more in common with these groups than not. Right, so you think um, Hamas is, a, is fundamentally a, a nationalist movement uh, rather than an Islamist movement. Do you, do you think that there has been any development in, 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 one of those, in either of those directions, though, uh, at different stages of its history? Do you think it has had moments where it has uh, flirted more with Islamism and others with, more with nationalism? Absolutely. I think that Hamas, certainly in its early years, uh, was very much rooted in the ideology of the Muslim Brotherhood, which was focused on Islamization before liberation. So the Muslim Brotherhood, you know, the first offices of the Muslim Brotherhood opened here in, in the 20s and the 30s, uh, very shortly after it was established in Egypt. And uh, the focus there at Hamas, uh, Hamas wasn't created, but the Muslim Brotherhood, uh, the leadership of the Muslim Brotherhood wasn't invested in any kind of resistance to the occupation. Their focus was Islamization. They believed that until a virtuous, pious Muslim society was created, there can be no liberation. That the kind of, uh, the creation of that society that's rooted in Islamic ideals was a prerequisite for liberation. And when Hamas was created or spawned out of the Muslim Brotherhood in 87, in some ways, it took that equation and flipped it over on its head. So it believed actually that liberation had to happen before that kind of society can be created. But it was still very close to the Muslim Brotherhood ideology in the sense that it was also close to the infrastructure that was available in the Gaza Strip, the mosques, the charities, the social centers. So in that sense, it was very much focused on this idea of Islamization, of this idea of, of ensuring that Palestinians have you know, the, the right ideals, the, the grounded in, in Muslim values, Islamic values. Um, I think over the course of the past 30 years, I think that's certainly the case still. I mean, if you go into the Gaza Strip, you see the effect that Hamas's governance has had on the social fabric. Um, but I do think that there has been a shift away from Islamism uh, that's a very strong way. It's not a shift away in the sense that you know they're sort of moving away from Islamism, but a recalibration in the sense that uh, the, the politics of the reality really does shape Hamas's, uh, the leadership of Hamas's worldview. And, and the focus is resistance to the occupation, now government and governance in the Gaza Strip, um, to, to, in, in a sort of a much broader, more institutionalized way than I, I, I would say in, in the early years of 
um, of the movement. There's also been a greater uh, degree of understanding about how its Islamism has been used against it, uh, both internationally, as I said, in the war on terror, but also regionally in terms of its relationship with Egypt. Um, and in terms of its relationships with Qatar and Saudi Arabia and other countries in the Gulf. And so I think the movement has just become a, a lot more savvy uh, at uh, uh, understanding how to uh, position its nationalist credentials alongside its Islamist credentials. I, I, I think the title of the book is, um, is provocative in a number of ways, Hamas Contained. It also um, gives us a chance to bring the discussion to the situation now. Um, why did you call the book um, that. Uh, do you think Hamas has been contained? Um, yes, I do. <laughs> I do. Uh, you know, whether it's been contained indefinitely is unclear. But I, I think it's been very effectively contained. I think if we think about what's happening in the West Bank, Hamas has completely been driven underground in the West Bank. Uh, and in, 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 I would venture and say that its institutions have been dismantled uh, to a very large degree in the West Bank. Hamas is, as an institutional presence, as a movement, Hamas primarily, if not only exists in the Gaza Strip, of course it has its external leadership, but the, move, the movement is more or less now anchored and centered and contained within the Gaza Strip. So in the practical sense, it has been contained. But there's also something that's uh, not limited to the practical sense, which is even thinking, even discursively and rhetorically understanding Hamas, Hamas and Gaza have become intertwined in the, our, our, uh, our uh, as in interlocutors who are not living in Gaza now, in our consciousness, uh, the two coexist. The blockade is on, on Gaza because of Hamas. The blockade is on Hamas because of Gaza. It's all been centered and anchored in this piece of land on the side of Mandate Palestine that's sort of been swept to the side. So in that sense, not just practically, but also rhetorically, politically, in all sorts of ways, Hamas has been contained. Um, but I think one of the things that I wanted to do in the title uh, is actually in the subtitle. So not necessarily in the Hamas contained, but in the rise and pacification of Palestinian resistance. And in, in, in that sort of subtitle, I wanted to do two things. I wanted to talk about Palestinian resistance. So this isn't just Hamas. So I'm sort of trying to, break, uh, to bring Hamas back into this broader arc of Palestinian nationalism. So it's Palestinian resistance. Um, but also to talk about this cycle that we've been talking about uh, a few times in this talk of the rise and the fall, the rise and the pacification. I think Israeli governments have been very effective at turning Palestinian resistance into uh, pacified governing authorities. Palestinian resistance, at least in its pure form, I keep going to that word pure in, in sort of its early days, that has failed. And I think that um, it, it continues to fail. It failed with the PLO, it failed with Hamas, and, and this idea that it gets to be pacified has actually been a very successful model. Um, but, there, but there has been so many efforts, right, at, um, at, at um, modifying its, its, um, its policies, and we have the, the 2017 charter. Um, which was a, a, a very serious change in presenting a, a new face. Uh, I remember reading an article about uh, in The Guardian that you wrote about that at the time. Um, do you think it was a profound change for the movement? Um, how, how much can we expect the movement to change? Um, will it eventually give up its, wep its weapons like the IRA did, for example? You like your easy questions. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Um, <clears throat> so, I mean, let's put things in context. When we talk about the, the, uh, the movement accepting, so in, in 2017 when they put out their new political document, they called it, they talked about accepting 67, um, obviously without recognition of Israel. You can read that in two ways. Some of, the, some of the leaders that I spoke to openly talked about how that was a calculated move uh, in which uh, the, the movement decided to put that concession or seeming concession forward because there was an absolute belief that the Palestinian, that, that the Israeli government would never accept 67 anyway. So in some ways they were calling their bluff. 
Uh, and in some ways that has worked. They are calling their bluff. The Israeli government now doesn't believe in 67. They openly talk about annexation. Um, and so in, in that sense, they, it was a compromise that they were ready to make because they believed that it would never come to fruition, that they're, they're sort of saying, you know, this is what your, your game is. You want us to talk about 67 and the two-state? We'll talk about 67 and the two-state, and we'll show you that nothing will change. And nothing did change. And so in that sense, it's not really a compromise because they, they believe that it didn't, it, 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 you know, the, the stumbling block, block isn't the Palestinians, it's the Israelis, and the Israeli refusal to accept uh, 67 as, as the line for partition. But the other side of this is to see it as, as a compromise in the sense that Hamas is, is, is a very pragmatic movement and is able to play the political game. And so it's able to say that, you know, if, if this is what's needed of us and this is where we need to be, then this is uh, the kind of politics that we will be playing. Um, and the fact is that when that document was put out, uh, Netanyahu in, in less than two weeks or three weeks afterwards called this a sheep in wolf's clothing. Uh, the other way around, a wolf in sheep's clothing. Um, so it, it was immediately dismissed. So whatever concession, and this goes back to one of the points you made in your, in your review of the book, there have been attempts by Hamas's leadership to put forward pragmatic concessions and to get the, the ball rolling in terms of diplomacy, if diplomacy is what it takes to resolve this. But there has been absolutely no appetite, not just from Israel, but also from the international community, to engage with Hamas. I mean, if we think about what's happening today, we have most of the diplomats sitting in the room, most of the diploma uh, diplomatic core here, having to abide by a new contact policy with Hamas when Israel is indirectly engaging with Hamas itself. So there is there is a sense that no matter what Hamas does, it's already been beyond the pale and it's already been sort of institutionalized and separated in, in, into the Gaza Strip. Um, on disarming, I mean, that's, you get a mix of answers when you talk to Hamas's leadership. I think that Hamas's, uh, the, 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 vision of Hamas's leadership is not necessarily the PA, it's the PLO. They want to see themselves as a party that is uh, leading the Palestinian national movement, not getting subsumed into the lives of the PA. So their vision is the PLO. The response and the uh, answers you get from Hamas's leaders is that if the PLO is reformed, if the PLO is representative of what Palestinians want, if the PLO is, is uh, reformed in a way that takes into account where the Palestinian people are at and uh, is, is a, a vehicle that is actually caring for the, the Palestinian struggle, that they would be open to uh, combining their arms and their military wing with the Palestinian military wing because they see their military wing as serving the Palestinian cause. In the absence of that, they view their arms as a necessary way to protect the Palestinian cause against the concessions that the Palestinian Authority and the PLO in its current form will be making. So I really think that the, the thinking about disarming can't be uh, seen out of context and can't be seen as a prerequisite. Disarming has to be uh, thought about within the context of revitalizing the Palestinian national movement. Uh, 